0: Or okay, 4th and 5th graders, you're dismissed to your class. Just a reminder, this is a rated PG-12 message series out of the Song of Songs. So if your kids don't know where babies come, came from, they will by the end of this morning. So if you don't want that conversation on the way home, go ahead and send them out now. Jenny was married to Charles, but he was a male chauvinist pig, in all honesty. Even though they both worked full-time, he was insistent that all housework was just, that is a woman's work, and he wasn't going to have anything to do with it. And then one evening, Jenny came home from work to find that her kids had all been bathed. There was a load of, wash, uh, load of clothes in the, washing, uh, in the washing machine, and there was another one in the dryer. There was dinner on the stove, and the table was set with flowers and candles, and she was completely astonished and, of course, immediately wanted to know what was going on with Charles, that he would do all of this. So it turns out Charlie, her husband, had read a magazine article that suggested that working wives would be more romantically inclined if they weren't so tired from having to work all day and then come home and do all of the work at home as well. Well, the next day, she couldn't wait to tell all of her girlfriends what her husband had done at the office. And so, how did it work out, they asked. To which she said, well, it was was a great dinner. Charlie even cleaned up. He helped put the kids to bed, helped with their homework. He folded the laundry and put everything away. I really enjoyed my evening. And then they asked, yeah, but I mean, after all that, I mean, how did it go? To which Jenny said, Oh, it didn't work out at all. Charlie was way too tired. We're going to be in chapter 6, verse 11 of the Song of Songs this morning. That's where we're picking up. That's where we've left off. If you've missed the first four messages, they're on our website on podcasts. I'd really recommend you go back and listen to it as it kind of builds on one another. A lot of background information will kind of pull you up to speed. Just as a brief reminder, here's the deal with the Song of Songs. When you read it, you're going to get done with the book and you're going to note two things. One, it is a collection of love songs, just exclusively. Love song, love song, love song. There's not any particular chronological order. There's not any particular plot or narrative. There's very few characters. And then number two, you're going to recognize that the book is sexually explicit in nature. Like, you'll finish and you'll think, how in the world did that make it into the Bible? And so in the end, what we'll say is that God created the male and female and allowed us to celebrate in that reality. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. Can we pray? And then let's get right into it. Father, we come to you and ask that you'd open up our hearts and our minds to your word. We thank you for your word and how it instructs us and how it guides us. And Lord, we know these subjects are very sensitive and they touch to the very heart of who we are and how we were knit together and who it is that we're connected to. And so I pray, Father, for grace all over this room, grace for me as I speak, grace for for my friends as they listen, and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, all the single people, uh, let, me, let me say this as we kind of get started. Let me just, as we get started here. I know we've been talking a lot about sex and the covenant of marriage and husbands and wives, and, and that's, what, I mean, that's what the celebration of the, songs of, so, of the Song of Songs really is. And so I totally get that it could feel like you're being excluded. What I've tried to do every week is kind of at least have a few points where, hey, if you're not married yet and you're still single, uh, these are some things for you to take note of. But I, I don't want you to feel excluded from this, even though the topic does belong into the covenant of marriage. Let me just say again, 93% of you who are single will get married. That's the statistics. I don't know where it comes from, but 93% of those who are single will get married. And so just on that level, I'm hoping as we go through the Song of Songs, you won't kind of think to yourself, well, I'm out, but rather it will, it will build on you a right hope and expectation and, and anticipation as you enjoy God's design and intent for marriage and sexuality when you do get married. But here's the thing for me. It doesn't matter whether you're single or married, you are continually being bombarded by sexual messages. I mean, I don't. This is just like, just married people, like single people are being bombarded from every angle of our society and culture, from TV, movies, books, magazines, radios, even sometimes you get bad stuff from churches, like that Catholic guilt that comes over you at times. These messages, all of them will shape thoughts and perspectives, and some of those messages are good, and a lot of those messages are not so good, and so there must be a standard by which we evaluate different messages, and this is why I think the Word of God is so important, and even this series on the Song of Songs is so important because it talks to us about sexuality and God's intent and it must be the guiding message of all the other messages that we receive. And I'd also say, if you are single, you are still sexual, right? It's like you don't one day stand before a preacher say, I do, and then God flips a switch and you go, whoa, I've never felt that before. I mean, no, it doesn't work. No. I mean, even when you're single... You have sexual thoughts, you have sexual desires, you have sexual feelings, and those aren't wrong. That is how God put you together. That's how he knit you together. The issue becomes really just one of stewardship. How do you channel those feelings and desires and thoughts? How do you guide those thoughts and lead those desires and thoughts and feelings? See, it, see you want to lead your desires and feelings, not you being led by your desires and feelings, and those are two totally different things, right? They come... And that's natural and that's normal. That's how God wired you. You just want to be the one who's leading those things and channeling them in the right way. And so we're hoping this study will kind of give a handle on some of those things. But I'm also hoping that the study will build in you a vision of what you want your marriage to be. So the 93% of you that are going to get married, that there's a vision that you could see. So my prayer is that if this whole theme of servant-lover, that's what keeps coming up over and over, right? You, you want to be with somebody who is at the essence, like Jesus, a servant. That they are a servant-lover. So in that, My prayer is, is that if there's some selfish bozo that steps, or bozette, if that's the feminine form, I don't know, that comes along and wants to marry you, but they're self-centered, you'll have enough vision of marriage to say, you're a bozo or a bozette, and the answer is no, I don't want to be with you. But what you see in the Song of Songs is two people who are servant lovers, who are committed to one another, who are living out of mutual submission and doing so in grace and forgiveness and on a foundation of covenant. And we talk about this the first week, right? Covenant is a big deal for marriage, and covenants are the foundation of marriage. It's so critical. I, remember, I mean, just think about it in terms of foundation, like of a house, right? The foundation is everything. If you mess up the foundation, everything else will be destroyed. In fact, I remember Kelly and I, we were in Corpus Christi, Texas. We were visiting some friends, and they showed us a house that was way out there, kind of a, you could see it in the horizon. It was a huge mansion. I mean, multi, multi multi-million dollar mansion. And our friends said, nobody lives in there because it was condemned. Because after it was all constructed, they did all their inspections. They found out that the foundation was bad, so it just got condemned from the very beginning. Foundations are key. And for you, going into marriage, Jesus is for you that foundation. He even talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount. Like, what you build your foundation on, your life on, is so Paramount, And so if you're committed to Jesus as Lord, you want who it is that you're going to be married to, to be committed to Jesus as Lord. Otherwise, you'll be trying to build your foundation on two totally separate blueprints, and it will not work. And I know oftentimes we think we're the exception, and oh, but he's a really nice guy. But I'm telling you, that won't mean anything when your children recognize that Jesus isn't important to their dad, and thus it won't be important to them. And every statistic tells us that's exactly what they think. Or it won't mean anything when you want to live a spirit-empowered generosity, but your husband can't even appreciate that or your wife can't even appreciate that because they don't even have the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, he's not talking friendships here. Like, he's not saying don't have friends that aren't believers. No, I mean, that defies even the very ministry of Jesus. But there's a oneness that comes in, it's, I mean, you're friends with your spouse, but it goes beyond that. You become one flesh. There's a oneness that you are building something in common together. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? But his metaphor is that yoke. And so I've got a picture here of a two oxen. You ever seen the oxen here with the yoke? That, that with The bar, the wooden bar, the big heavy, it's going across their necks? That's a yoke. And Paul says that's what marriage is like, a big, heavy beam Weighing you down. No, I'm just kidding. That's not not what Paul's trying to say. What's he trying to say? See, if that yoke is not on those two oxen, you know what those two oxen are going to do when they're trying to plow a field? They're going to go different directions. Or one's going to be stronger than the other. The other one's going to be weaker. What that yoke does is it keeps them together so they can plow the same path in the same way. And one can supplement each other or you know, kind of help each other out. And that's what the purpose of the yoke is. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, don't do that with somebody who isn't confessing Jesus as Lord or you'll be fighting each other the entire way and the whole house will be on a shaky foundation. So in that, I say all this because I've witnessed a disturbing trend as singles get older. And hang with me, singles. We're going to be friends at the end of this. I'm not looking to offend anybody. Listen to me. This is what I've seen in terms of the trend. They panic about the prospect of being alone and the temptation then is to settle. Like they go into it when they're younger having high views of I want this in a spouse and I want this in marriage, I want this, but as they kind of get a little anxious about it, I don't know if I'm going to find anybody, then they begin to settle. And I would say, don't settle, right? Continue to have a high, listen, God will take care of you. He will provide for you. I'm not saying it will be easy. I'm not saying it won't take patience, but he will provide, I promise. And then second, in the anxiety, there's this tendency to want to justify and so what happens is you begin to believe that you're the exception to the rule. And even though you know God's word says this, you and God have a different understanding, and he really does understand, and, or we're really in love in a way that nobody else has ever been in love in the whole history of the world. I mean, I've heard it all. And, and in the end, I'll just simply say, God is not trying to be a killjoy. You're not the exception to the rule. It is for your best life possible that he wants this for you. Okay? Are we okay? We're moving on. Number two. One more thing before we get into chapter 6, verse 11. I know I've mentioned this. It might have been last week, but I want to elaborate because it's very important as we enter into the next passage, the next section of Song of Songs, and that is you need to know men are visual creatures. That is how God wired us. It is innate to who we are as guys. So ladies, let me tell you about your husband. Let me tell you a bit about guys. I'm sure you've always wanted to know. This is important, and it will help you as you understand the Song of Songs. Mark Driscoll, who's a pastor in Seattle, Washington, did a message series on the Song of Songs. And in it, he points to the work. It's a book by Shanti Feldon, who wrote a book called For Women Only. She's trying to tell women, you want to know about guys? She also wrote a book for men only, all about women, but it was blank because she figured we couldn't figure it out anyhow. So it was all just. (laughs) Yeah, but here's the title For Women Only. And the subtitle is Understanding the Inner Lives of Men. It's a brilliant work. Chapter 6. Let me give you the title of chapter 6 is this. Keeper of the visual ro- Rolodex, why it's so natural for him to look and so hard to forget what he's seen, okay? Chapter 6, so you know about guys, it is keeper of the visual Rolodex, why it's so natural for him to look and so hard to forget what he's seen. Here's what she notes. One, almost all men are visual. Like across the board, almost all men are visual. Now women, 25% of women are visual, right? Right? I mean, So I'm not excluding all women. Some women are very much visual. And if you're one of those women, you will have a greater appreciation for how your husband thinks and how he he processes things. But if you're not like that women, I just want to say all men are visual. What that means is number two, a man cannot help but notice a beautiful woman. But it doesn't mean that he prefers her to his wife. Now, this might be a struggle to you because you're thinking, I don't want him to look at other women. I mean, listen, it is just a part of how he was knit together. He notes beautiful women. He cannot help but notice, like, a beautiful woman walks in the room. I'm telling you, every man, they'll pretend they're not looking, but they all know that she's there, and right? I mean, right? Amen, guys? Amen. Now, the rest of you didn't give me an amen. You're, like, sitting next to your wives going, no, I'm not amen in that, dude. You're on your own. I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I've only seen my wife. I don't know what your problem is. You all are liars, I know it. <laughs> Number three, men's minds involuntarily, hear that word, involuntarily make snapshots of beautiful women. And he has mental pictures. This is what she refers to as the visual Rolodex. And they come in his mind even involuntarily. So what happens is a guy could be driving down the road just minding his own business. He's not doing anything wrong. And the next thing you know, this image of that girl that he sat with in eighth grade class comes to mind out of nowhere, and he can't explain it, and he doesn't know why. But it happens. That's just the way guys are kind of knit. He, he didn't ask for the image. He didn't seek it out. The other thing you need to know is our world assaults men with images. They're everywhere. He can't go anywhere without seeing images of beautiful women. I mean, he can't go to the grocery store and check out because you got all those, I mean, I've heard, those magazines are all right there. I don't. <laughs> and in this, you also need to note, men derive some degree of pleasure by seeing a beautiful woman. Men derive some degree of pleasure by seeing a beautiful woman. Now, ladies, you can act disgusted by this, or indignant, or angry, but this is just how men are wired, and men and women are different. They just, they just are. Right? And this is by God's design. And at one level, we want to celebrate that God has created us differently. And I would say in that we need to also understand that our minds and our bodies are different. The issue becomes is what men do with these snapshots in mental images or files. Because that's what determines whether a man sins or not. Right? It's not that he has them, it's not that there's not a Rolodex or that there's files aren't there. It's what does he do with them? See, the sin is not in noting a beautiful woman. The snapshot of the beautiful woman is for him simply a temptation. And a temptation and a sin are two totally different things, right? Right. Temptation and sin are two totally different things. Did you know Jesus was tempted? In every way. Like this is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. But now note this. But without sin. So Jesus was tempted. And see, I know some people get all weird out when we talk about this, like because I've done it before, like talking about Jesus as a real man with real testosterone. I mean, some people prefer their Jesus to be asexual with no testosterone. Not me, because I can't follow a sissy Messiah. So I'm glad (laughs) Jesus has, he's a real man, and, and he has testosterone. And I find comfort in knowing that Jesus was a dude just like me. And Jesus wasn't blind, was he? No, no. In fact, he healed blind people. He healed blind men. And as soon as blind men were able to see, you know what they did? They took snapshots of beautiful women because that's how God (laughs) whipped them together. Yet Jesus, even though he was tempted, he did not sin. So the issue becomes for us, do we feed those thoughts? Do we feed those temptations? Do we mold them over? Do we use those in such a way that objectifies them for our own selfish end? The issue, I've heard somebody say one time, it isn't the first look, it's the second look. And I'd say... I don't know if I want to count looks, because that could be irritating all day long, third, fourth. I mean, I I don't want to do that. It's just simply to say, yeah, there is a fine line between when it moves from temptation to noting a beautiful woman to becoming lust. And you just need to know, I have never heard an adequate definition for lust. I just haven't. I mean, it exists. Jesus tells us it's a reality, and I don't have a good one to offer you this morning. So you're probably thinking, well, what good are you? I'm obviously not much good. But so in the end, it's just one to pay attention and take note of, when do those Rolodex files, those images, go to a place that God never intended? And so temptation and sin in the minds of men are a continual battle. There's always a battle in the, in, the, in the minds of men between this temptation and what becomes sin. And so Mark Driscoll in his messages after referring to uh, this uh, book by Shanti, he says, so what can wives do about this? Here's some things he suggests. Here's, let me give you five things that he suggests. Number one, don't judge him for being a man. I mean, what that means is, he's different, he thinks differently, don't judge him for that, don't say, well, you're, you're a pig, or you're gross, or, you know, you've got a real problem with that, and you need, I mean, no, no, this, this is how his mind works. Number two, learn about your husband's masculinity through humility and questions. What that means is, of course he's different than you, and he thinks differently than you, the way you respond to that is in humility, just ask questions. So why do you think that, and why is that attractive to you? I mean, it's okay to ask all sorts. of You want to continue to be communicating and talking. Number three, he says, be sympathetic then with his temptations and be supportive, which will mean it will be an issue of communicating. Lots of communication of this is what I'm going through. And I'm not saying, you know, you, you might not want your husband to tell you everything. You might, he might have friends that he's accountable to. You'd rather him have those conversations there. But at least be a supportive spouse to be able to open have open opportunities for communication. Number four, he says, be a visually generous wife so that you can be on his team. Like if this is how he thinks, if this is how how his mind works, you can be an ally in this and you can help him in terms of providing visual images that are right and good that God always intended. And so it goes down to the very practical of, you know, when you're looking to be intimate, lights on or lights off? Lights on. You're welcome, men. There you go. Ladies, I mean, if he doesn't have images of you because you're changing your clothes in a locked closet or every time you're taking a bath, I mean, I mean, no, no, what, what? you could be his ally in this if this is how he thinks. Number five, instead of fighting against him, fight for him and give him redemptive images. So that's important to know as we move into the text here. Let's go to Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 11. Okay, now, verse 11 and 12 are perhaps some of the most difficult verses in the entire book because we don't know who's talking, we don't know, even in verse 12, very complicated. So he, here's what we know. The complications begin with even who's speaking here. If, you're ha- if you have a New Living Translation Bible, the heading of it will say, this is the woman talking. If you're using a new international version, the heading will say, the man is talking. Based on the arguments that I've read and some of the commentaries, I'm going to side with the New Living Translation. I think this is the woman who is talking here in verse 11, and this is what she says. I went down to the grove of nut trees. Now... As we've been saying in Song of Songs, this is very sensual language, this is very erotic language, she's using nature to communicate what she wants, to look at the new growth in the valley, to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. See, what she's simply saying is, I'm in the mood to be with my husband. I'm in the mood to be intimate with him. I desire him. I'm looking to explore my husband's body. That's what it says. I mean, that's what she's talking about here. To be intimate with him, that's what she desires. We can at least say this for sure. When you get to verse 12, it's even more complicated because... We don't... The Hebrew words are... They're complicated. We don't even know how they work. And so, if you're reading an NIV translation, it says this. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. But if you're reading the New Living Translation, it says this. Before I realized it, I found myself in my princely bed with my beloved one. If you're reading the New Revised Standard Version, it says this. Before I was awake, my fancy set me in a chariot beside my prince. So, three totally different ways of translating because this is a very complicated verse. But in the end... Regardless of the words, basically, in the end, we aren't sure what she said, the the wording, but the sentiment seems to be this. Her passion has so overwhelmed her that she is caught up and discovers herself transported into the man's chariot. What this basically means is what you drive is important. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I don't know if that's right. I take that back. I don't know. Let's move on. Verse 13. Verse 13, the very beginning, uh, 13a says, Come back, come back, O Shulamite. Now, remember, who's the Shulamite? The woman's the Shulamite, right? We don't even know her name. It never once gives us her name. It just refers to she's a Shulamite girl, okay? And so it says, come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. Now, the issue is this is the plural, got it? I mean, that we may gaze. And the only other time you see the plural in the Song of Songs is when it's in the mouth of the friends. And so most people think here at the beginning of verse 13, it's the friends who are saying, hey, we want to spend some time with you. Because you've probably experienced this. You ever had a girlfriend that falls in love or gets married and you never see her again? right? Like you used to hang out all the time. You had plans together and then she finds somebody else and you're like, no, nah, I'm just like leftovers and she's always off with her man. She's always off with her husband. It looks like something's that's going on here. She's in the mood to be with her husband. So she might've had plans with her friends, but she broke them because she's now in the mood and she wants to be with her husband. And her friends are saying, no, no, come on back. We want to hang out together. We want to be together. And so she responds to this at the end of verse 13 and very interesting. It's for her friends, but I think it's a coy way that she's really speaking to her husband. She says this, Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of the Mahanaim? Now, the dance of the Mahanaim is a, da- it's a war dance. What it literally means is the dance of companies or the dance of armies. It would be an ancient custom when the armies took the battlefield. They weren't dancing with each other, but there was this war dance that took place. And she refers to it as a, as a metaphor and as a euphemism for probably something else. What she's about to describe is, I'm going to dance for my man. She said to her friends, why would you want to look at that? And so this is really for Solomon being coy or her man of what's about to take place. This is a reference probably to an ancient striptease probably, right? I mean, you're thinking, dude, are you serious in the Bible? Yes, it is in the Bible. Praise God. We've got ancient striptease right here. Now, husbands, I'm not saying go out and buy a stripper pole for your wife just yet. Let's just, let's hear out the passage and see what's going on. But she's about to dance for her husband. Because what happens next is the man begins to describe what he sees. But what's interesting here is this will be the fourth description overall we have in the Song of Songs, right? The first three, you had two where he describes her, and you got one where she describes him, right? A Very descriptive. The technical word is a wasp, and it used to be sung in weddings, kind of this great, oh, you know, get in the mood wedding type of thing. We have the fourth one, and it's where the husband now begins to describe what he sees. And the thing is, though, usually when we have a description, where does it start? Remember? It starts at the top of the head and works its way down, Right? But when you get to this description, where does it begin? Verse 1, with her feet. And why? Because she's dancing. That's the focus of the moment because she's doing a dance for her husband. So he begins to describe. Let's go to verse 1. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. He notices her shoes. Husbands, your wives want you to notice their shoes. They're into shoes. I know we don't get it, but they're into it. So you should acknowledge it. And that's what he does here in verse 1. He notices that her feet are beautiful. in those sandals, those are nice sandals, O prince's daughter. And then he begins to work his way up. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. All right? I mean, her legs, her thighs, he's like, this is you are beautiful. And then we get to verse 2, and a little thing happens here in verse 2. He says, your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Now, just in terms of order, right, if you're working from feet on the way up, like, unless she's staying on top of her head, the navel is usually not above, right, I mean, the waste is it's misordered. And the reason is because sometimes even in your English translations, the interpreters get a little blush by what's probably being referred to. And so that I don't take all the blame myself and can blame it on others in a blame-shifting sort of way, let me read to you two commentaries in regards to verse 2. Tremper Longman, who wrote the International Commentary on the Old Testament, says these words are in quotation marks in his commentary because we believe that they are euphemisms for the woman's vulva. This indirect reference to the vulva is in keeping with the poet's strategy of tasteful though erotic allusions to the woman's body. The description of the woman's aperture as containing wine implies the man's desire to drink from the sensual bowl. Thus, this may be a subtle and tasteful allusion to the intimacies of sex. And Dillo, who writes another one on Song of Songs, says the Hebrew word shore, translated here as navel, probably does not refer to the woman's belly button. While shore could mean that, in general, it is translated as vulva, the description that the shore never lacks mixed wine speaks of it as a source of sexual pleasure and moistness. We okay together? It's in the Bible. I'm just giving it to the Bible, all right? That's what we're doing. Her waist is like, you know, mounds of wheat, which you're thinking, that isn't sexy at all. But I don't know, have you ever seen wheat kind of bundled together? Have you seen that and it kind of has that shape to it? I don't know, it's probably what he's looking at and thinking, man, you are hot, you got, whoo, your waist. That's what he's talking about. Verse 3, we've heard this before, haven't we? Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, right? He sees her breasts and he thinks, small, furry, woodland animals. I don't know. That should be petted. That's what he's saying here. Verse 4, your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim, And your nose is like the tower of Damascus. I mean, what's he saying? That it's faith, right? Looking towards Damascus. What he's saying is, you've got a huge nose. (laughs) But he loves Like things change, right? 3,000 years ago, a prominent nose was a very attractive feature. And what he says is, baby, that nose is huge. (laughs) Woo! And he loves He's all over that. It was different back then. Okay. He continues the description, verse 5, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair, oh, it is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, O oh, love, with your delights. Your stature, okay, man, pay attention to this here, you ready? Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts are like the clusters, right? What does he say? The, the clusters of fruit. So if you've been wanting to say to your wife in a very romantic way, I'd like to uh, go for your breast. Then you say this. I will climb the palm tree, and I will take hold of its fruit. <laughs> May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like an apple, like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. See, what you're seeing in this is this is in the Bible. This is covenant marriage. This is God's idea. This is marital freedom. The husband is captivated by his wife and she is uninhibited and has captured his visual rolodex by dancing seductively before him that god has created him to be aroused through the eyes and she was skilled at giving him all any that any husband could desire in a lover now this isn't forced this isn't degrading she's not humiliating herself for the sake of her husband and how do we know this because look how she responds See, her response comes next. She delights that she's been able to do this for her husband. And so she will say next at the end of verse 9, May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. See, she rejoices. I'm happy to do this for you. I'm glad that you. I'm glad that your desire... See, notice the same thing that keeps... That servant lover, I belong to him, he belongs to me. His desire is for me. Husbands, listen to me. Your wives will feel more safe and confident and be less inhibited if she knows that your only desire is for her. And when she does this here in Song of Songs, it's because she knows that his desire is only for me. And so you see this taking place in their relationship together. Now, what I'd say also in this is for a moment, uh, you kind of see, she said, you know, I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. This is my prayer for marriages here. That, that f- from the moment you take your vows until death separates you, that your husband will only have desires for you as his wife and you as the wife will only have desires for him as your husband. That that will always be a part because I'm t- it is important that we finish well. See, the most important day is not the wedding day. It is the last day. See, anyone on the first day can have, ooh, we're all dressed up, we're all excited, you know, we're all giddy, and everyone's here, and family's here. Okay, we, we can pass that day okay. It's the last day that everyone struggles with. It is on that last day, have we been faithful to the covenant and the vows that we spoke on that first day? And what I find is so many couples, as they're getting ready to get married, spend so much time and energy and money and focus on the wedding day and almost nothing invested in the journey that is to come. They do little to prepare themselves for the final day because I'm telling you, that first day, it... It's all giddy. I mean, it's nothing compared to that last day. That last day is the most important one. And so, what I'd say is if you're about to get married, Go ahead and have a nice wedding. Spend money on your on your wedding. Spend money on the reception, but don't let that be the only thing you invest in. You should go find a great premarital counselor and then prepare yourself for that final day because in that context, with a good, I mean, really, not like somebody who thinks, I mean, a good marriage counselor to help walk you through issues of because your personality is like this and your personality is like that, you need to be aware, right? And we all have those things. Kelly and I, we have different personalities. When we went to premarital counseling, he was very wise to say, because you, Sam, are like this, you need to be aware that Kelly is like this, and it will rub the wrong way. And she, he was right. I mean, it was amazing, right? And she didn't have any flaws, but that was, he was letting me know, so that was what worked, Right. And so you want that. You want to be able to invest in that last day. Invest in books and resources and seminars. And if you are engaged and about to get married, you should hang out with couples who've been married for 40 years. Like, go find someone who's happily married for 40 years. Take them to the lunch and just ask them all sorts of questions. How'd you, get, how'd you handle this? How'd you handle the kids? How'd you fight like this? How'd you, how'd you make it 40 years together? Don't ask all your divorce friends who has no success in marriage. I mean, ask somebody who gets it and who understands it and who knows it. And in these verses, she's delighting that she's been a pleasure to her husband and once again notes their servant, their servant love for one another. But what's important to me is I think really this goes back to what God intended. From, uh, what you see here is a glimpse of what I think God intended from the very beginning. That when you go to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, you will see a picture of what God always intended for everybody on the face of the earth. And what I love about Jesus is is we mess it all up in sin and the consequences of sin, and Jesus enters the picture, and he redeems all of it. So, for example, from the very beginning, right, from the very beginning, God's intent and heart was that we would have a relationship with him, that we would have a relationship with God, and what happens is we mess that all up through sin and disobedience, but when Jesus enters the picture, what does he do? Through atonement, he brings us back into relationship with God once again. He is restoring what God intended from the very beginning. God never intended for people to struggle in bondage. He never woke up and said, I would like you, so-and-so, to be held addicted to this and be in bondage to this. That's never been his desire. His desire has always been one of freedom. And so those who are in bondage, when Jesus enters the picture, what happens? They are set free because of the truth that is in Jesus. God never intended for people to struggle with demonization. And so what happens when Jesus enters the picture what happens to the demons they got to go they're being sent they're being sent away and the people are set free God never intended for people to struggle with diseases hear me say this God never intended for cancer he never intended for diabetes he never intended for heart disease none of those was God's intention And when Jesus enters the world and he enters the picture, what does he do? He heals people of everything. You've got blindness that's healed. You've got cripples who are healed. Leprosy. What's he doing? He's restoring what God intended from the very beginning. God did never intend for people to be lost in sin. What does Jesus do? He sets them free and offers them grace and forgiveness. God never even intended for death to be a picture of our experience. He just did it. And what happens? Sin and disobedience messes all that up. But when Jesus walks back into the picture, what does he do? He brings us back to God's intent. It's resurrection, and he conquers death itself. And God never intended for there to be divorce. He never intended for there to be struggles and conflicts between spouses or rifts in relationship with guilt and shame and bitterness. But what did he intend? We talked about this the first week. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 says what? The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, this is more than they're just running around the house naked. You know, I mean? No, no, I mean... The picture is they love one another, they're vulnerable with one another, right? They have a relation with one another where there's no shame between them. There's no, they have no shame. And what you're seeing a picture in Song of Songs, even in a fallen world, is a snapshot of a couple who is married and naked and have no shame. And that's been God's design and intent for marriages all along. And I'm telling you, when it feels like there's a rift in the marriage, you go back to Jesus. Because when you go back to Jesus, it will be that ministry of Jesus offering grace and forgiveness that restores us back to what God intended from the very beginning. And so, now let's move on. What, what do we see here? What we're seeing is just an illustration of sexual freedom is here. And, and this couple is embracing their sexual freedom. And I would say to married couples, I think God intends this for your life as well. And I know sometimes there's a struggle to, uh, to being inhibited. And what I mean, to inhibit means to restrain or to hinder or to prohibit or to check and so we ask, what are the possible restraints that are, I mean, for women to be inhibited? What are some of the things that kind of contribute to that? Let me give you a few. One, an overly sensitive modesty. This just depends where you grew up. You know, kind of family of origin. You I mean, you know, there's some cultures where you can't even show an ankle without it being a big capital offense. I mean, I'm not, Ryan, it's just what those things impact on you. And so you could bring that into your marriage. And so if you've always thought nudity and nakedness and being that was wrong, I mean, then that will have an effect on your marriage. Number two, it could just be guilt or shame. Guilt or shame could be an issue. By guilt, I mean just other things that happen between you and maybe somebody that's not your spouse when you were younger and you've got guilt for that, to which I would say this. Listen, there's absolutely nothing you have ever done that Jesus cannot forgive. Nothing. Nothing. And his desire for you is when you enter into your relationship into your marriage that you do so without all that guilt and shame. It has been taken care of on the cross. And there's no, listen, there is nothing that you did that cannot be taken care of by the blood of Jesus. Or it might be just some sort of shame that you're just, you don't feel good about yourself. You think you got those tapes that are playing in your mind about you don't you look like this and you're not attractive. Listen, don't let those tapes exist in your mind. It could be embarrassment. Well, I don't want to. I can't do what this woman is doing because I'd be embarrassed to do that in front of my husband. Or, or sometimes it's just selfishness, right? You you might be thinking. Sounds like a lot of work. I'm just, I'm just not sure I want, right? I mean, well, it's just a selfish attitude. That No, I mean, she's willing to go uh, an extra mile for the sake of her husband. It could be a fear of rejection that's going on in your life. It could be sexual abuse, which we talk about almost every week now, just a little. I mean, if you have that in your past and part of your story, then it will take an extra measure of grace and compassion and communication to wade through those issues, or it could just simply be inadequacy itself. You just I don't feel confident in that. So how to overcome some of those restraints, how to overcome some of those inhibitions, I would say, well, if one thing is you just don't feel good about yourself, do those things that you know will contribute to you feeling good about yourself. If that means, you know, eating right and going to the gym, you'll feel better, that's fantastic. It might be wearing clothes that are kind of sexy in attire. And I would also say, see the humor in things. I mean, not everything you guys are going to do is going to work, and you need to be able to laugh at that and not get all bent out of shape. and oh, no. I mean, no, I mean, they're your friend. You should have a good time. And I would also say you should pray. I find most people, they don't want to say a word to God about anything sexual because it's sexual and it's God. And No, I mean, he knows what you're thinking, and he created this whole thing. And so if you're struggling with an area of inhibition in your life, and you want to go, you should just talk to God about that. Just say, I want to be able to live in the sexual freedom you intend, and I want to be able to offer this to my husband, and I've got these issues, and I just need you to take them away from me, and I need you to help me deal. That's an appropriate and right prayer, and you should pray about those things. Husbands, I would say this, do not inflame her inhibitions, because you can't. Do not flame her inhibitions. Here's some things: pornography is one of them. Like if she knows you're looking at that, and then you want to go be with her, she's like, "So you want me to do what you just saw?" I mean, she's like, don't be the porn guy that will inflame her inhibitions. Number two, don't be discouraging, meaning don't be critical. If she steps out and risks and is vulnerable in front of you, don't don't mock that, don't make fun of that, don't be critical of that. And I would say, not just in the bedroom, if you're critical in every other part of the marriage, then she will assume you'll bring that into the bedroom and you are not a safe person to be around. You're just not, you're not a safe spouse. Do not be discouraging, do not have a critical spirit. I would say to the men as well, do not be too serious. Your wife is your friend, laugh together. I would also say, help her in terms of discretion. Like, your wife isn't going to feel like doing anything with you, free to, If the, there's no lock on the door, right? You've got four kids are about to come to the door. I mean, put a lock on the door, dude, that's on you. Go to Home Depot, take care of that. Be patient. Don't let impatience uh, detract from her being inhibited. Hey, marriages are not measured in days or even months. They're, they're measured in decades. Just go slow. Be patient with one another. And finally, if there's performance issues that are getting in the way, as we said last week, go see a doctor. Okay, here's your, here's your assignment for uh, go home, get in the car, talk to your spouse, ask these questions. Husbands, ask your wife this. What can I do to encourage your freedom? What can I do that will encourage your freedom? And then, wives, you should ask your husbands, what are your favorite snapshots of me and why? Now, men, when they ask this question, tell the truth. And then, wives, ask, what can I do to be more visually generous? What can I do to be more, to be more visually generous? Okay, we're okay together? Let's move on. Verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11. Now, this is brilliant. Here's what she says next. Listen to this. Verse Verse 11. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. And there I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I've stored up for you, my lover. Now, I love this passage. Here's what I think is happening here. You know, I think it's probably one of the greatest uh, factors that's undermining your marriage. I mean, at least one of them up there, one of the factors that's really undermining your marriage. It's probably busyness. It is that you and your spouse are both living your lives so busy. You've got this on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights and on Saturday morning you have this. And then you got, it's so busy that you have no time for one another. In fact, as I mentioned in the first week, the average couple spends only four minutes a day in meaningful conversation. Four minutes. That's it. And the other thing besides busyness is just simply routine. Have you ever noticed how quickly life just gets in a routine and after a while that just becomes a rut? The rut can happen in the midst of communication with simply everything always being the same. Same routine, same everything. Everything is familiar. Familiar meals, familiar life habits, Tuesday night's this, Friday night's it's that, familiar bedroom, familiar uh, initiation into intimacy, familiar positions, everything's the same. So you put busyness and routine together and I'm telling you the passion in your marriage will plummet. The answer is found here in verse 11. What does she say? I want to have a weekend getaway. I want to go to, let's leave the city, and if this is King Solomon and all of your busy administrations and government, let's get away from it all, let's go out to the countryside. She's saying what she wants is a weekend getaway. It is a marital marital Sabbath, just the two of them, and it breaks out of the routine and out of the normal, new setting, new context. Get out of the city and go to the countryside, because listen, ladies, you know, right, when you get away from the kids and the house and the chores, you're in a new place, you're in a motel, you're on vacation, isn't everything better? I mean, in, in your mood, isn't it better? I mean, this vacation sex is what she's asking for. That's what she wants. And I'm telling you, you need to do this in marriage. You need to get away. And I know it can be, it might cost some money, and, and, but it's imperative, right? What this means is you do not bring the kids. Do not bring your kids with you. I know couples who they have not spent a vacation by themselves in forever. And sometimes it's because they're nervous to be together because they've got other issues going on. But when kids are there, it will not be for you guys to be intimate and to be together. So leave the kids with grandma and grandpa or a trusted friend. They'll be okay, I promise. Just get away. And it also means uh, don't go to the in-laws. That's not a marital Sabbath, right? That's not. And i will tell you just personal experience. But Kelly and I, I know if Kelly and I do not have a vacation, it's just the two of us in a year, I mean, it affects our marriage. I can tell. There's a big difference. And so uh, do that. It's it's what needs to happen. So and here, ladies, if you want to go on vacation, but your your husband here's how you do it. Because there's two ways you can get your husband to take you on vacation. Number one is just nag him, right? Just you never take me anywhere. You never, never take me I mean, on vacation. I'm going to nag, 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 yaw, you, right? Or you could do number two, which is what she does here. What she says is, "I would like to go on vacation and have a lot of sex with you." That's number two. If you do that, he will book it today. I promise. <laughs> All right, we're, we're winding down here. We're about to end here. What does a woman want? I mean, she says it right here. It's really she's she, she talking about. She wants to go outside in the vineyards and be intimate, and I mean, it's like she wants outdoor sex because it's now warmer out and springtime here. And so, I don't know. I guess. You'll have outdoor sex is what it's saying. I don't know. Just be careful not to get caught. If you do get caught and it's going to be in the paper, you go to Granger Community Church. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I love to see you. I'm just kidding. All right. You're welcome. Schedule time together. All right. At the end of verse 13, this is what she says. It was just a joke. All right, it was just a joke. At the end of verse 13, she says this. And at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my lover. What's she saying? She knows what he likes. They've been together. That's the old, right? I know it's worked for you in the past, and that's, these are some of the things that are waiting at our door. Delicacies old, but I'm also interested, let's do some new things together. Let's do some experimentation, and that's the new, and this is an excellent model. You should follow it. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray. You've done really well. Okay, we got one more week is all you got to endure of this, right? And then we will be done, and we'll move back to a non-PG-12 rated series. So thank you for your grace for me, and patience We've kind of waded through this. But uh, after the prayer, we'll have a final uh, invitation and and blessing. But let's just pray and ask God to bless our marriages and our relationships and to think rightly about our sexuality. Father, we come to you and thank you for your word. And again, we just ask that it guides us correctly in whatever state we find ourselves, whether it is that we're single or whether we're married or whether we're in marriages that are great or marriages that are barely hanging on. What I'm asking for is for your spirit to be at work, to restore what you intended for our lives from the very beginning, that our desire is to be faithful to you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.